right off the bat, I've got to uh, ask with a prayer and a hope that you not be distracted this morning. That you not be distracted by the tie-dye t-shirt. That you not be distracted in that the subject is marriage. That you not be so that if you're single or you're not in a relationship, that you just dismiss it. And that you not be distracted by some of the words that you just heard. Some of those words that our culture has put a lot of baggage upon and have so come to distort God's design for marriage. The word submit. The word call your husband like Sarah called her husband Lord. The word adorn. Don't do your hair. Don't wear lipstick. Don't put on makeup. Just model after the Amish. That's all a distraction this morning. We're in a series going through 1 Peter. And when this text was put into, when we began to months ago when Jonathan looked at 1 Peter and as part of his ministry is he looks at the text and, and the book, the series that we're going through and, and we're like, okay, this is how long it's going to take us approximately to get through this. So we didn't choose necessarily this text to coincide with uh, a children's Sunday, but it's fitting. It's fitting. In that if you have children as a product of a marriage, then you want your marriage to be by God's design. That there will be harmony in the home. That there will be a fruitful home in the marriage as a product of marriage. That there will be a marriage that is a model of God's design and not the distortions of the world. So Peter is, our theme is being steadfast. Peter is talking to the church in Rome. This letter would be dispersed over all the known world because God's people were dispersed because of persecution. They, they found themselves living like exiles. But he had told them earlier, as you live in your community and in these differing cultures, don't live in a holy huddle only with other Christians. Don't insulate yourself as if you're worried about catching or being tainted by the world. Don't live yourself either as a tourist that is simply going through and seeing things. He said, live like a resident, but an exile. Live like someone that can say, I am a citizen of heaven. My home is in heaven. But while I am here, I will be a part of this community and I will engage this culture and I will live like one. I will live like a resident, but who is far from my eternal home, invested. So engage the culture and be a part of the community. And Peter today is going to tell us what a steadfastness and what a marriage in this culture by God's design would look like. And 
because of the sake of time, I know that that can be a distraction to see we started a little bit late this morning, but it's just seven verses. And I just have two points that I want to share with you as Peter communicates this to his congregation. It's very sad. This is God's word, not simply for our culture then, but it's for our culture now. God's design has not changed. And so if you're a single, there is much to learn here for your relationships, for, for Christ-honoring relationships, and how to conduct yourselves in relationship with others, not to say that you can also learn again, perhaps, what God's design for marriage is. And for those of us who find ourselves in a marriage, we can look at this and not be beat up, but actually encouraged as we will recognize at the end of this morning's message where the real power to have a God-designed marriage lies. And it's not simply within ourselves. It's in the gospel that we will see again as we come to the table. Without further ado, let's look at, we've got an outline this morning, and I want to uh, show you a number of things. Uh, Peter uh, didn't have, perhaps, all of the distortions that we have, but there are many distortions in the world as to what a marriage, according to Peter's uh, submission of God's design, would look like. Distortions of God's design. The world looks and it says, you know, in this type of marriage, it's a macho, abusive man who is the boss. This is just, this is just red meat for that macho guy who wants a weak and afraid housewife who is the slave. Woman, submit. Shh, be quiet. This is man stuff. Or... It is to come to the man and say, the man needs to be an apron-wearing, stay-at-home wife. Now, if you're a stay-at-home husband, this is not in any way a dig at you. But Peter, Peter's words are just, they're going to strike at the one who is abusive to not be abusive, just like the one who is passive and not leading in his family. I, I very rarely encounter in marriage counseling a man who is a macho, abusive husband. But I encounter very, very often a man who is withdrawn and is not leading his wife or his family. Very passive. It's also a distortion is that they would say what a woman in the home is to be is she's to be the smart exec bringing home the baby. In other words, we need to recognize that women have so much to offer in the business community that is more than you do, but that it's greater than to stay in the home. In other words, if you stay in the home, you've compromised. A distortion of God's design. Say God's design is an inferior design that keeps women in an inferior position. It's a distortion. Or, marriage is to be two fiercely independent selves holding on to their rights. I can remember many a day that 
of performing a wedding or interviewing a couple to do premarital counseling in order for the, the day of their wedding. Um, and one of the times we walked through the wedding service, we talked about the unity candle or some sign of unity. And I can remember one encounter where typically during the unity candle, the couple will come and they will take the candle from each end of a three candle candle opera, the two on the outside are lit, but one is not lit in the middle. They'll take those two from the outside, they'll light the center candle, and then they're to blow theirs out, showing that the two have become one. And I remember a young lady making it very clear, I'm not blowing my candle out. He blow his out, I ain't blowing mine out. Well, the idea that marriage is to be, that neither one of us are to lay down our rights, that's a distortion. Philippians says that like Jesus Christ, he laid down his rights before God the Father. And he said, I will be the son, you be the father. I will suffer and die. I will get low in order to serve others. Paul says in the Philippian letter that that's how we're to serve others, even to the laying down of our own life, to, to not count our rights as rights. To not consider selfish gains, but to consider others. And then one of the last distortions of many, and this is a little tricky, two selfless people who serve reciprocally. Now we think that this is, this is God's design. Two selfless people. I give myself to you and then you give yourself to me. I simply want to say that while this is a small distortion, it's still a distortion. And this is what Peter is dealing with. He's saying it's not an equal selflessness. It's not always reciprocal in a marriage. Sometimes I am a very, very awful, selfish bear of a man in my marriage. And thank my Lord that Wendy is not. I guess if we both were at the same time, then uh, the neighbors would be calling the cops on us. It's not always that way. It's not always reciprocal. But it's still God's design that I give myself selflessly to my name. In other words, it's tricky because if we think it's reciprocal, what are you going to do when the other person does not reciprocate your selflessness? You're giving and you're giving and you're serving and you're loving and they're not. Well, marriage is not supposed to be that way. God's design comes to us as a female and it comes to us as a male. And it's very specific, but it's not dependent upon the other person's actions. Peter is writing first to wives about God's design. And he's saying, you are, particularly in two areas, to conform if you want a steadfast marriage. If you want God right beside you, upholding you, and strengthening you to be the woman that he's designed you to be in a marriage relationship, you're to submit to the husband, and you're to Keep an eye on your focus of adornment. The word submit here is a word that can be very distracting. 
As he comes and he's saying submit, you'll notice he's saying in verse 1, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without word by the conduct of their wives. Peter is dealing with a, a culture and a community that Nero was the emperor. And that Romans and Greeks and other Gentiles are coming to know Jesus Christ and are being born again. And they're newbies in the faith. And he is instructing them and he's saying, this is God's design for marriage. This is what marriage is to look like. And there would have risen a great problem. A great problem for women. Women who would find themselves married to either a man who was not a believer and still following his own pagan customs of worship, religion, or nothingness, atheism, or a very, very young believing man. But most specific, so what he's going to say is, if you're married to a man who is not intimate with God, if you're married to a man who does not listen to God, if you're married to a man who does not understand the good news of pardon and forgiveness, such that he can show pardon and forgiveness for you, submit to that man. Really? Really? Sometimes what's written in the white, now, I know you're going to there's nothing written in the white. That's right. Sometimes what's written in the white, what's left out, speaks volumes. Notice here that Peter doesn't come to women and says, all right, now here's what you're supposed to do. If you're a Christian woman in a relationship with a non-Christian man, what you need to do is, first of all, you need to just break it off and leave. Just say, I am born again, I'm a believer, and you're not, you're not getting it, and so there's no fruit in your life, and it's just difficult, I'm out of here. He doesn't tell them to leave, he doesn't stay. Secondly, he doesn't tell them to preach. Ooh. One without a word. I wish I could take the time this morning. I cannot. I will do it very soon. I do it at least once a year. I share my testimony. I share how, as a man who did, I wanted nothing to do with Christians in college. I found out that you were a Christian and you had come into my circle, my club, my sports activity or whatever, I would persecute you. I would run you out. I didn't want any, I didn't want any encounter with Christians. But there was a man in my company, I went to a military school, there was a man in my company who was an upperclassman. And he was a Christian, though I didn't know what he was at the time. And I saw him in various situations of conflict and trial. And the man, I just say singularly, he had joy. And he faced it like I imagined a real man. Not a womanizer, not a hard drinker, not a profane man. He faced it like a man. And he was persecuted, but he was steadfast. And, I, and he did it without words. He did it without words. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't prideful. He spoke to people. He laughed. He touched. He, he appropriately touched people with you know men. You know we did oh, there's a pat on the back when you need it. 
I mean, the guy, I was drawn to him like a magnet. He won me eventually to Christ. And that's the longer story. But it was all without words. And Peter is saying, staying in the relationship, not preaching to your husband, and, and as you are there, learning to serve them and to conduct yourselves in a holy manner without words, you will win them over. They will change. Slowly, perhaps, but they will change. But what do they, what do they see? So what he's doing, and oh, by the way, just a, a quick little uh, thing. He's not ever, ladies, never, ever is he saying, submit yourself to sin. Never. Think more along the lines of respect, trust, putting him forward. But if he asks you to do something that is sinful or disobedient to your God, then communicate. And if you can, without words, tricky, but communicate. No. And how do you do that? Peter tells you. He says, when they see, and that's a word for a spectator, like a gladiator event. When they see you, and they're watching you, ladies, you're respectful. Now, I've got an English Standard Version, but other versions of the Bible, when they see your fear, your fear of God. And what that means is, reverence, that you adore, you, you hold God higher than anything else. You revere God, you worship God. When they see what you fear most, when they see what you revere most, and one way that they're going to see that is when you're asked to do something sinful. And I'm not going to fill in the blank of what is sinful. You'll know. But that's not what Peter is saying. He's just totally just surrendered to everything. And this would have created a contest of wills in many of these relationships. A Roman man married to a Roman woman who was a convert. The Roman man would frequent orgies with his wife. Very culturally appropriate, though sinful. So she could no longer go to the orgies of her husband. It would create, so when Peter's talking, he's saying, but he's still saying, don't participate in the sin. That's going to create a huge contest of wills right there by you respectfully saying no. But the way you say no is say, I say no to this because I've said yes to God. And for some, it would have cost them their marriage. They would have been put away. This is where Paul, in his language of 1 Corinthians, where in 1 Corinthians he says, if the unbeliever leaves, then let him leave. He's saying, but you don't, you stay. And by the way, he says, and my time, this was so huge. I mean, this thing, this, I, I look and I'm like, seven verses? This is great, 20 minutes. And then I, I look and I'm like, wow, there is so much to be said here. But there's so much that, that has to be deconstructed. 
By, he goes on, he says, in a very practical application, he talks about adornment. And adornment is the focus of attention of one's attractiveness. So for some, it might be, and as it was very popular then, it was their hair. Now this is not a scalp. This is just my extension so that whenever I, whenever I go out, do you think that if I went at the mall that I would attract any attention? I mean, do you think? I mean, you think people would do a double take? I hope somebody would stop me and say, you actually hungry. Certainly, if you love me, church, and you know that you would stop. But here, Peter's talking about the focus of your attraction. What is it that, is, that you look at it and you say, this is what makes me feel accepted. This is what makes me feel attractive. It's the thing that one uses to make oneself beautiful to others. It's cultivating a source of beauty requiring time and mental exercise. How much time does it take you to adorn yourself? You know, I mean, it's an old bad joke of husbands saying, hey, we're late because she had to get ready. Uh, but oh, how much time do you spend there? Dan Doriani on this text from uh, Covenant Seminary as a professor said, one measure of what we see as the adornment of our life is how much time we spend on that thing that we want to appear attracted to others to be accepted by them. In other words, he would ask the question, you spend more time adorning the external body. This is Peter's principle. This is what Peter is talking about. Are you spending more focus have you put more weight on the external? That will perish. I mean, gravity, I can tell you, 56 years old, and gravity is now not coming to me in decades or years. I think it's coming in minutes. I mean, I wake up some morning, I'm like, whoa, man, gravity shift here. Gravity is aging all of us. We're all just, this tent's perishing. How much time do you spend on the external and how much time do you spend, as Peter emphasizes, on the internal? What is that internal adornment like? Let me, uh, it, it's, it, it has a bearing, before I leave this, uh, Epictetus, a philosopher, during this period, during this time that Peter is writing, he makes a comment about the culture and women and their adornment that I found very helpful in applying to today. Immediately after they are 14, I think it starts earlier. I can tell you, a uh, five and a half year old granddaughter, I had this uh, sermon illustration, this hair extension early in the week. I fought her all week to keep her hands off this hair extension. Okay, so I think it starts earlier with this idea of girls adorning themselves. But he says, immediately after they are 14, women are called ladies by men. And so when they see that they have nothing else than to be bedfellows of men, they begin to beautify themselves and put all their hopes on that 
It is therefore worthwhile for us. Pay attention. It is therefore worthwhile. It's worthwhile for us. And he's aligning himself with the Christians. To take pains to make them, women, ladies, understand that they are honored for nothing else but only for appearing modest and self-respecting. In other words, what he's saying is, Peter is not coming and saying, let's be like the Mennonites. Ladies, cover your hair. Uh, don't wear makeup, eyeshadow, lipstick. Uh, he's not saying that at all. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. But how much weight are you putting upon that? And then where is the energy coming from behind that? Are you doing it simply because you say, I just have to be married, and this is what you've got to do? Or I've got to be acceptable to other people, and this is what I've got to do? He's saying, no, because now of the gospel, and your acceptance. You are Jesus Christ's beauty, ladies. You're his beauty. You can wear makeup, but now be at ease. The internal, the fact that God looks at you and calls you his beautiful girl, his beautiful woman, creates this, I know no better word than to say, glow. They see your reverence. They see your fear. They see your love for God. And men are won over by that. She's not here. But my wife, I want to tell you, it's been a point that we have to continue to clarify in our 33 plus years of marriage. But I was first attracted to her by her love for Jesus, not her physical body. And previous to that, I'd only been led Bodies. But when I saw her as a new, baby, squeaky, brand new Christian, I was like, wow, she loves Jesus. She's such a beauty. There's not another one like her. She won me over, even without words, as I watched her. And if you're in a difficult marriage, there is hope. There is hope because the man is watching you. But much more than that, it's God's design, and he delights in that. The ESV says in verse 4, in God's sight, it's precious. It's beautiful. God looks at it and says, this is sweet to me. This is my delight. So much so that if we fast forward to men, he says, this is so sweet to me that if the marriage is not of my design, and if men... In Colossians 3.18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But it's not without Colossians 3.19 that he says, Husband, loves your wives and do not be harsh with them. That if we are harsh with our wives, if we fail to understand them and honor them, God says, it hinders your prayers. Eugene Peterson, in the message, puts it like this. 
in the new life, this is verse 7, in the new life of God's grace, your equals. Treat your wives then as equals so that your prayers don't run aground. And being a boatman, I can tell you stories, uh, as I permit, about running aground. There's no forward progress. You have to sit and wait either for the tow service, yes, there's a tow service, or, as I've done, the tide rise. You're not moving forward. One commentator said, the sighs of an injured wife come between the husband's prayers and God's hearing. And he's not talking, he's not talking here about praying with your wife, which is a wonderful thing. What he's talking about is your own personal devotions. Your own personal relationship with God, this conversing relationship, whether it's in the posture of bowed head and clasped hands, or whether it's driving down the road. When I'm trying to communicate with God, it's going nowhere. It's running ground because the sighs of my wife are heard from God to override the sighs of my heart, unless it's to if you look at this, one thing that can appear a little distracting is that there's six verses about wives, and there's only one verse about husbands. But husbands, I don't want to let you off light at all. You got it hard. So play the man and get on. If you look in verse 7, it says a couple of things now. I've got to land the plane here in just a minute, so stay with me and uh, take a note or two so that we can end. First of all, he says, husbands, live with your wives. And the word there is, to live with is sinoic. And it's the word that we see a lot in the Old Testament. It has to do with sexual intercourse. Get your attention. Uh, it's the word where Adam went in to his wife. He, Adam, dwelt with his wife. Where a man knew his wife. And it's a word there that can be used to say, I'm living under the same roof with someone, or I'm living in a relationship with someone, but it means very, very intimate even like sexual intimacy. And the two things that he says in living intimately with your wife that men, you are to do, is he says, number one, you're to understand your wife. Right. I don't understand women at all. Well, you're not called to understand women. You're called to understand your wife. Do you know? I've got two questions for men. Two questions. First of all, do you see the hidden person of the heart with her imperishable beauty? Do you see her faith? Do you see her eternal adornment? Do you understand her faith? Do you understand her doubts? Do you understand her fears? Do you understand her dreams? Are you, are you intimate with those things? Lynn Eldred wife of John Eldridge uh, wrote in a book, Captivated, 
talking about how we're, as women, as women, many times men are not actively trying to understand women. And what it creates is a feeling that because they're unseen and because they're unknown, then it creates a feeling of uncertainty. I'm unseen. He doesn't really see me. He doesn't see what I'm doing. He acts as if he could care less. And then I'm not only unseen, I'm unknown. He doesn't really know who I am. And it creates this uncertainty as to who I am as a woman. This is Lynn Elker speaking. And what it means to be feminine. And what it means to be his woman. Why don't we see it? Two, two quickies. Here, this is fun stuff. It can be fun. This is, you're not going to be beat up. I mean, you're not going to be, it's not like being whipped. Get Gary Smalley's book, The, love, the Five Love Languages. Find out what your wife's love language is. Man, do you know what your wife's love language is? Great dividends, by the way. Figure out what her love language is and what to speak. Great dividends, just say it. Secondly, do you know what Myers Briggs is? You can go online. Go online and, and you do it. You take your Myers Briggs, take her Myers Briggs, and then match make those Myers Briggs and see how they communicate in a marriage, see how they get along in a marriage. I can tell you this me and Wendy are total opposites. We're, we're, according to Myers Briggs, there's an alarm that goes off someplace, and it's like, get them immediate marriage counseling. This couple, these profiles are not supposed to be married. I'm an extrovert. I get energy from standing on the stage. I am. I take Fridays off. I'm by myself pretty much all day Friday until Wendy comes home from nurse management where she's had another day of conflict, and I'm ready to go out. I'm, I'm, hey, let's get a couple over. Let's get six or seven couples over. I'm an introvert. I don't get energy that way. I've been with people all day. All I want to be is alone. But over time, I can tell you, the issue of her submitting and winning me over without words, of respecting me and loving Jesus, over time, submission is no issue in our marriage. Get with older couples and you'll find submission and serving the other understanding the other, beginning to find ways to honor them, it doesn't become as much of an issue as working it out in the early years of marriage. Stay with it. Stay with God's design. One last thing, because it's a, it's a quote that I cannot get out of my head, and uh, I've got a slide of uh, John Calvin, and I want to share this and this is something that, this is where we, in part, get our energy to do this. John Calvin says, we are not, when you see another person, here's what you're to see. We are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but to look to the image of God in them. See God in them. Before you, I mean, see all the, the flaws and the wickedness, 
third, to see them made by God is their creator, whether they acknowledge him or not. They are made in God's image, whether you acknowledge him or not. They are all made in his image. So there's something of God in every person. And he says, see that. An image which covering and obliterating their faults, an image which by its beauty and dignity should allure us to love and embrace them. Learn to see God in other people. And learn to see them how God sees them, longing for them to experience his pardon and all of his grace and to be transformed. And then I would add to that a little bit, dangerous to add to John Calvin. I would add to that what Mother Teresa famously said about the power to wash the feet of filthy lepers who were dying. Turn. She said, when I sat down with a bowl of clean water to wash dirty, deformed, leprous, smelly, infected feet. This letter seems contagious. She's not gloved up. Not little wrinkly Mother Teresa in Calcutta. She says the power to do that is that I am surrendered to God and I am washing the feet of Christ. You can only submit and serve another person. You can only seek to understand and honor another person. If you will only, you can only do that if you say, I am surrendered to God and His design. And I see that model of what Christ has done for me. Where did Christ do that for you? On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, Jesus Christ, now this is Passover. This is the night when the innocent lamb, the blood that was formerly put over the lentils, the blood is shed, the innocent lamb, and sins are covered. Jesus said, that's me. I'm going to do it on Passover day. And he said, to explain it to you, he took bread and he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. Broken for you in your place. And submitting his own life to God for us, it was broken. He says, eat this in remembrance of me. And then in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, my shed blood. For the washing away of all your sins. Drink this in remembrance of that. In other words, again, Jesus Christ, without any reluctance, by God's design, surrendered and submitted to God, even to the point of giving his own life, that he might win us over even without words, as we look to the cross. Even without words, the cross of Christ proclaims God's fierce love for me. Even where Christ submitted himself on our behalf. And he turns to women and says, 
that was beautiful, God. And you, cement, it's equal. And you seek to understand and honor your wives and women. God loves that. That does not ever hinder the conversation. God, it, it opens up the conversation because God loves them. When we even understand and honor those who are wives and women in the church. Let us pray even as our men come forward. Heavenly Father, this is a rich, rich passage. Because behind it all, it's not just a marriage relationship or how we are to relate to one another as men and women. But behind it all is how Christ, the real, the real, the real friend, was willing to die in order to serve his bride. And how the bride, the church, we, Christians, your people, we find submission to you now becoming easier and easier as we look and you win us over again without words. We see you on that terrible day on the cross. We see it played out even in this cup of wine and this torn bread. And we're won over again. And it becomes easier to submit to you. It becomes easier to surrender our rights even in relationship and union with others. So Father, Bless us with that power to do so in love from these elements, even as we seek to surrender again to you, Christ. Amen.